Well, hey everyone, this is Cameron. Uh, I'm not at my home, I wish I was. I, I did a pass of this at the house and with two young kids, I just couldn't swing it. So here I am in my office at the Northeast Church building. Um, and here returning to 1 John for the weekly sermon series, uh, which is which feels good in certain ways to get back to. Um, I hope it's helpful for us. Um, but before we jump into the text that Joel just read for us a few minutes ago, I just want to give you an update on, on how I'm doing. And, and I, honestly, I suspect it's very much in step with how many of you are doing. Um, yeah, for the past months, obviously COVID-19 has just been this low buzzing stress in the back of my life and your life and probably everyone's lives, um, especially as, as I've just considered the ways that it has both physically and financially um, impacted so many people that we know and love and, and, and that we don't know and that we still are called to love. Um, and as a brand new church community trying to find its legs um, to have physical gatherings cut off from us um, has made it so alien to try to lead alongside with the elders, uh, with, with almost all of my ministry preferences sort of separated from me and maybe not just preferences, but ministry values. And beyond that, maybe even ministry gifts, like not able to tap into them. This has felt so powerfully uh, real um, and, and, and painful, uh, especially in the light of the events of the last few weeks, um, as, as we're just seeing uh, our world and our country throttled in fresh ways uh, and in sustained ways by the reality of racism, racial injustice, by police brutality with no proper accountability, and the mishandling of justice in profound ways. Um, like so many of you, I've been in a real season of sustained grief, and I know that it's probably a fraction of what people of color and black people in particular are feeling right now during this time. Uh, but it's there. It's real grief and real pain, just sort of humming all the time in the back of the mind. Not only that, it, it's, it's been hard as the Lord has, I believe, really been doing work in my own heart and revealing some, some disappointing and ugly things that it's powerful work, it's important work um, that he's been doing that I've been able to confess of and share with others, uh, but it's painful. <laughs> and I suspect many of you might be in that boat as well. Amidst all of this, I know that when Jesus and his community of kingdom people, when they allow themselves to comprehend his mercy and grace and love, his perfect self-giving love to the other, his beautiful plan to make a supernaturally unified people across every tribe, tongue, and nation, unified in all their uniqueness. When he's doing that in the world, when we get that, and when we don't let it stop at just comprehending and knowing these things intellectually, but when we let it come down through the heart, out into the body, through action, we know that that's powerful and that that's where real healing and peace and hope can be found. And historically, the church has, the American church in particular, has failed in so many ways, especially on this issue. But we still hold out hope that God's people, inspired by his spirit at their best, can be a part of this. Uh, in ways that no one else can. And so I just want to say being a part in these moments uh, when we all need encouragement 
and accountability so desperately is excruciating. Um, I'm encouraged that we're entering phase one and we have a chance to, to start inching back into community together. Um, but, uh, but it's made it a hard time <laughs> for me and I suspect for many of you. Um, I want to be with you all. I want to hug you and cry with you uh, and do life with you. Um, so let's pray that, that that can come soon safely. <laughs> uh, by way of intro to the sermon, I do just want to say a couple of things about how our church plans to address um, these issues that are weighing so heavily on our hearts and minds. Um, I want to say that first, I don't believe it's the church's responsibility or, or, or that it would be healthy for the church uh, to necessarily make sustained comment on everything that rises to headline news. Um, that would hamper our ability in many ways to uh, let God set the agenda for our conversation. But there are times when the world is writhing in such collective anguish that I believe it would be irresponsible for us to not stop um, and to dwell on those questions together in light of what God has revealed. Um, it would be irresponsible not to take time to, to see what does God have to say about this? If anything, is, is Jesus good news for this situation too? And if so, how? What does he ask of his people as his representatives in the world during times like this? These are questions that we have to answer. We have to answer them. And so we will. We want to take these questions seriously and answer them. In the short term, um, today, uh, there's uh, a resource list going out that's some, some good resources, mostly Christian, you know, worldview resources to help us think through uh, some of these things from articles, podcasts, books, whatever. Um, lots of great churches, especially in Portland, have been able to sprint into this conversation with some really amazing things. Some of those are included there as well. Um, we just commend those to you. Um, We've also got some organizations that our, that our elders have kind of looked at and vetted that we've put before you in that document if you'd like to donate and give or even give your time and energy to. We think it would be time well spent and money well spent uh, on organizations doing, doing really beautiful work in these areas of racial justice locally and nationally. In the long term, I've said this before, I'll say it again, we know this is going to be a marathon, not a sprint. Um, fortunately for, for this issue, the unity of people across tribal lines is one of the major themes of the whole Bible. And as we return to the book of 1 John, I've, I've been struck by how naturally and powerfully it applies. The application just fits with so many of the questions that we're asking right now. Uh, so it feels like a timely book. But, but beyond that, we have book clubs about to start, several of which are addressing some of these issues from different angles. I encourage you to join one. And we do plan to weave focused teachings into our church over the long haul, uh, already with some plans for some special podcasts uh, and teaching series where we can hear from voices both within our community and outside our community uh, to help us think through these things. Um, and we know that, that while the evil of racism is not the only thing we can talk about or will talk about, it is something we must talk about as well. Um, and so for now, we turn to 1 John 1, 5, 2 through 2, uh, as Joel read for us. And, and even this text has some incredibly timely things for us. Uh, 
and uh, how it's applied to our lives in a moment like this. I hope, hope you'll see that. So um, we look at chapter one, verse five to start. He says, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Um, so this idea that God is light is going to be kind of the grounding principle that the rest of these verses are going to kind of flow out of. If it's true that God is light, and this is a beautiful metaphor that we see all over the scripture. So we see the, the very first words out of God's mouth, let there be light. Um, we think of, of the light of creation springing into existence uh, from, from God's, God's words. We think of the light of divine guidance uh, frequently throughout scripture, the light of exposure and revelation. We think of the light of the new creation. Um, all these are, are, are probably themes that are in the back of John's mind as he says, God is light. And if God is light, he's going to lay out then five implications for what that means for his people as we're called to image him and represent him in the world. What does it mean? If God is light, what implications does it have for you and for me? And that's going to be the heart of this passage. So let's, let's jump into it. Verses 6 through 10 lay out five possibilities that all begin with, an, with if. They're if and implied then statements. If this, then this. He's going to do five. Let's just read them back to back. First one. He says, if we say... We have fellowship with God, with him. While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Possibility two. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Number three, verse eight. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Number four, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Number five, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So taking those five all together, it raises the question, like, what is going on here? Which is it? Um, must we walk with, with the perfect light emanating righteousness of Jesus uh, or else we're revealed to be fakes? Or are we to be regularly confessing our sin that we presumably are committing? You see the tension there? And this sort of, this sort of ties into a classic dilemma that so many Christian traditions have struggled to sort of find the balance on. Put another way, does Christianity encourage the libertine who might say, well, because God loves me, I can do whatever I want and it makes no difference whatsoever? Or does Christianity encourage the legalist uh, who strives and strives and strives to avoid sin so hard, but when they slip up, it's condemnation upon condemnation upon condemnation. The sort of belief that my moral perfection is what's required of me uh, to be right with God, to find salvation. Which is it? You see the dilemma that what John has written kind of produces. Um, is John consistent here? What is going on? Well, John probably had Jesus's words from John 3, 19 through 21 in mind when he wrote this, which says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. 
and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And here, Jesus points out two essential elements of living the Christian life that, are, that we have to get right. The first is the importance of integrity. I mean, it's the importance of living a life striving towards sincere obedience to Jesus's commands. Uh, Jesus said it himself, if you love me, keep my commands. Um, integrity matters. What we actually do with, with our knowledge and love for Jesus matters profoundly because we're representing him and his heart in our interactions. But at the same token, his light brings exposure. The, one of the emphasis of this passage is, is, is Jesus exposing our actions and what we've done. So we live lives of, of, of humble transparency before him, letting the dark parts come to life before God and neighbor. And, and, and back in 1 John, focus on, like John focuses on what we say. He says, when we de deny sin, we make God a liar, the God who said, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. To deny our sin is to make him a liar. But verse 9 gives the opposite of denying our own sin, which is confession, an act of exposure. And he says, look, if we confess our sins, two adjectives of God's character, we get to experience. His faithfulness and his justice when we confess. And... When we confess, we receive two actions from God. We get his forgiveness, removing our guilt, and we get cleansing, removing the stain that our sin has produced. So confession is powerful because it tests what we really believe about ourselves and God. It makes us confront at least two super, super important questions. Number one, do we really believe we're included in the all who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Do we really recognize in ourselves participation in and contribution to the sea of sin and evil and injustice and death in the world? And not in the abstract, but in particular concrete ways. Like sin is insidious. It gets into every area of our lives. And we could talk about any number of, of sin right now. Uh, for application here, but one in particular came to mind very clearly this week. Um, a lot of, of white Christians in particular are really struggling with this right now as, as their protests inspired by the murder of George Floyd and, and others, um, and they're bringing with them the, the impetus and the call even to look deep within ourselves to see where we've allowed a foothold for either active sins of racial, racial prejudice or passive ones of, of racial indifference. If we've allowed these things to take up residence in our hearts. And many of these calls are not driven by gospel-minded hearts or, or assumptions. Um, and, and thus many of us can, can feel threatened or, or confused or, or attacked in response. But this verse and the larger principle and value of confession throughout the scripture, um, it should give us the humility and the boldness to ask alongside David in Psalm 139. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. 
try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Christians should never be afraid to, with the Spirit of God, look inward and have him search us for sin and for shortcoming, that we might confess it back to him and find cleansing, find our relational dynamic with him restored, and to find a way forward into newness of life. And it makes us ask a second question too, which is at heart, do we really believe that God is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness? Do we really believe that in his radical grace, he is actually for us? If you don't believe that that is God's fundamental heart toward you, it's grace, you'll never have the courage to confess. So if you don't confess, um, let's tie these back together. A lack of confession in our lives, it might either indicate an inflated view of our own righteousness and the inability to, to be willing to humbly search out our own sin, or it might indicate a fear of God and a misunderstanding of his radical love and grace and what he's already done for you on the cross. Either way, let us confess, John says, and not be afraid to do the work required to make confession meaningful. And to wrap up with verses one and two, John is gonna tie all this together in a really beautiful way. And he starts with my little children an incredible term of affection for his readers. It's almost as if he's saying, hey, children, come in close. Let me make this clear for you. Let me help you understand. He says, I'm writing these things to you. All these things that they seem kind of in tension with one another and confusing. He says, I'm writing. Here's why I'm writing to you. So that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. So often Christians can fall into a kind of easy believism or what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. In the cost of discipleship, Bonhoeffer says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal conversion. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. This kind of understanding of grace, it, it disincarnates our faith. It encourages us to think of our actions in the here and now as pointless or irrelevant. But if we really take Jesus seriously, uh, that, that the greatest commandment involves love for God expressed in the here and now through love for neighbor. How could this be? To love my neighbor seriously demands a putting to death of sin in my life, both passive and active in my public life and in my private life. I can't love neighbor and in the same moment turn a blind eye uh, to their mistreatment, to their abuse, to their neglect, to their sufferings, to injustice toward them. Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, just go read Luke 10, it makes this so clear, beautifully. And here's the thing, if God does love this, the world and every person in it, he has to hate every instance of sin, which defaces the people that he loves. He has to oppose it, and he does. That's part of the good news. He's so good and just to care about 
what we do about our sin. This is a vital part of what makes the good news of his kingdom actual good news. Transformed, integrous people in the here and now. People operating with integrity and with exposure. So, he says, don't sin. It matters. But, at the same time, in the same breath, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. There is advocacy for when we mess up. And what does this advocacy look like? Well, here's the last, the last verse, two, chapter 2, verse 2. It says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is what his advocacy looks like. The word propitiation, that's a pretty technical sounding word. It's closely related to the word atonement. It gets translated a number of different ways. Some, some translations will read propitiation. Some will say atoning sacrifice. Some are moving toward mercy seat because of its connection with, with the mercy seat imagery and word group. Um, but I, I, And there's debate over what this word means. It's kind of a complex one to sort of get to the bottom of. Uh, but, but I believe it has to do with turning away or satisfying the right, that righteous anger of God that we were talking about. Um, that, that righteous hatred of sin. Remember, this is not, when we, I know that when you say that, it, things flare up, it, it sounds really intense. But this is not a hatred that's arbitrary or cruel. It's the perfect, uncorrupted version of what we experience when we come face to face with an actual act of real, legitimate evil. For us, it often takes like a really extreme act um, for these kind of gears to start turning within us and for us to actually take notice. So I'll ask you, when was the last time that you had a clear look at a radical justice and goodness mocking evil? I mean, honestly, we have the opportunity to see them online every day and we live lives in a sin-fallen world or if we have the eyes to see, we'll see them every day as well. But the question is, when was it that you felt that burning? For me, it's this burning sensation in my head and in my throat and in my chest. It's this, it's this anger that wells up. And I know that there's sin mixed in there as well for me. Uh, but there's part of it that's, that's, that's a hatred of what I know is wrong. God experiences that perfectly when he sees anything that's an affront to what is loving, good, beautiful, and true. What we experience in, in moments like that, God experiences without compromise, with full clarity, with full proportion, with impartiality, and with perfect righteousness. And so Jesus, as the propitiation or as the atoning sacrifice, it means in part, at least, that God doesn't just wave sin or his righteous anger away. He doesn't just say, oh, it's fine, we'll just we'll let it slide. Through the cross, the triune God, in harmony with one another, Father, Son, and Spirit take the entire weight, effects, and punishment due to sin into himself in the person of Jesus actually on the cross. And he himself becomes the person in which the sins of the world are judged, taken away, covered, forgiven. He does all that is necessary to see his righteous anger, his justice, his love satisfied by bearing the penalty himself. 
And though this led to Jesus' death, he was raised on the third day and he appeared to his disciples and he ascended to the right hand of God, proving that he had done it, that he was who he says he was, and that he did have the power to forgive sin and to transform his people, to live lives in step with his spirit and his true plan for this new humanity he's building. And this verse ends with this last clause. He didn't just deal with our sins, but the sins, quote, of the whole world. This last clause emphasizes the wide inclusivity of what Jesus offers. No one is beyond the love and grace of God. No one. Though we can choose to reject it, and people do tragically all the time, nonetheless, he has done everything necessary to save anyone and everyone if they will grab onto it via faith. This reminds us that Christianity is an outward-facing religion. It doesn't stop and terminate uh, just with us individually in our one-on-one relationship with God. But we have loving service and genuine good news to share about a God who has done everything. He has given everything to bring the wanderer home if they'll simply trust him and take it. And so this matters. This matters in a world that's looking to uh, churches like ours, majority white churches, and asking, uh, is your good news actually good news for black people and other groups of people? And we have to be able to say resoundingly yes uh, because of our conviction in the scripture and because we've allowed that conviction to spill out in the way that we love and serve and treat and fight on behalf of other people. If God's love is for the whole world, so must ours be as his representatives in the here and now. And so Door of Hope Northeast, we will get into more pragmatics around this later. Uh, We wanna keep these sermons short for now, but I just say in how we speak and how we think and in how we act, may we reflect the loving heart of God. May we be a people who pursue integrity, that our actions and how we walk might reflect Jesus and how we face our neighbors, our neighbors that don't look like us. May our lives be marked by transparency, by the exposure that comes from walking in the light, letting our sin be freely confessed and shared because we know we have an advocate who has dealt with it already and who spurs us on into deeper and deeper intimacy with him, which means deeper and deeper love for those around us. Amen.